Should be on. Testing. Good. Well, last week we had a nice little interlude. I really enjoyed last Sunday with the children and we had some visitors and we were able to engage with them. And I do trust that even though um, that may not necessarily be repeated like that on a Sunday morning, that God will help us to continue to engage with people in the community. I just, I really enjoyed it and it was just so nice to have visitors here who wouldn't normally have been here and have the opportunity to talk to them. That's really good. So we do thank God for last Sunday and trust that he'll lead us on in our contact with the community. Well, we're picking up our theme, um, which is about real faith, exploring the nature of real faith, and we're looking at Hebrews at chapter 11. There'll be lots of scriptures coming up on the screen um, today, but um, the kind of keynote verse uh, is verse 1, which is, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And the rest of the chapter, the writer, whom we don't know who it is, he's using illustrations from Israel's history to illustrate this kind of faith. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you will help us through your word, which we believe is living and active, um, Lord, to engender faith in us. Father, we know that faith pleases you, pleases you more than anything. And so, Lord, please help us as we look at your word this morning, that faith will indeed rise from our hearts based on the truth of your word. Lord, help us, please, in Jesus' name. So the writer, I'll just remind you that the writer is encouraging Jewish Christians who are experiencing persecution from their fellow Jews. They're in disgrace. They're being outcast by their fellow Jews. And they're under pressure to leave following Jesus and go back under uh, Judaism. And the writer is using so-called heroes of faith from the Old Testament uh, story, from the history of the Jews, to illustrate these people who had faith in God and uh, who trusted him in all sorts of uh, of, uh, circumstances. And they're being encouraged uh, to trust God and to have faith in God, no matter what their circumstances. And this faith was their faith in the future that God had planned for them. And in chapter 10 we read, So do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. That's all about the promises of God. And um, I've made the point a couple of times that this kind of faith is not an independent commodity. People may say to you, I wish I had your faith. Well, if you knew the God that I know, if you knew the Saviour, if you knew the promises that come to us as Christians, you might have my faith. It's not just something I have or I don't have. You know, I'm optimistic, you're pessimistic. It is based always on the truth of God. And we mustn't lose sight of the context. The circumstances of the people that are listed, um, they're very different from one another and they're different from us. But like them, we should be living in the light now of what God has promised us uh, in the future. And I was thinking about the miners in Chile down 
nearly half a mile under the ground. That is such a long way. And you can imagine that the fact they've had a promise over their lives, we will rescue you. That must change their whole attitude, their whole behaviour, their whole demeanour underground. It must have a huge effect on them because there's a promise. It's not happened yet. They've still got to wait a long time. It hasn't happened yet. But there's a promise over their lives. And we mustn't let the present circumstances, the writer is saying, whether these are good or whether they're bad, undermine our faith in the future that God has promised those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. If we belong to Jesus, we must be convinced in some measure this life is a preparation for the one to come which is going to be so more glorious, so more wonderful than we can even imagine and live our lives in the light of that. Somehow or other, um, in our hearts, we have to hold on to eternity. Eternity for Christians must be in our hearts uh, because God has placed it there. God has given us so many wonderful promises. And we mustn't be distracted by the good things that come into our lives, the blessings that come, which can distract us and cause us not to be thinking about the future, not to be holding that as a hope, nor should we be distracted by the tragedies that come in our lives that even maybe threaten to undermine our faith. And the writer to the Hebrews, he tells them, you are aliens and strangers. We're only here for a season. This is not our final home. Um, You are citizens of heaven. The best um, is yet to be. Now, I know that we, as Christians, we use faith in all sorts of uh, situations. There can be the kind of day-to-day faith. And some Christians operate this more than others. There are some Christians who see every activity in their lives as a matter of faith. And maybe they're going down into town with their car and they know it's a Saturday, it's going to be crowded, and they pray for a place in the parking lot. Okay? They pray for a place there. And they trust that God, have faith that God will provide them a parking space. For others, uh, it may be that they need to keep praying to God for finances or for healing or other things. Now those, in, in, in various measures, are legitimate. But what the writer is talking about is their ultimate future. All sorts of things are going to happen to them uh, in this present life, good and bad, but it's their ultimate future. And so this is what they're told The writer tells them in chapter 11 here. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. So it it wasn't about parking places and money uh, and healing. It was about their future. And uh, and so it's so, so important that we understand that. It's faith for the future, their ultimate future. Fine. Well, our text for today then. Have you heard the term short straw? You draw the short straw? Well, talking about Joseph's bones, you might think the preacher has drawn the short straw. But here it is. By faith, Joseph, and he's the character we're looking at today, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Strange, isn't it? 
If you know anything about the life of Joseph, there are some wonderful incidents where you could say, these are great examples of faith. But why is the writer giving this particular example? And to understand what Joseph is saying here, we have to go back a few generations, um, even go right back to Abraham, God's promises to Abraham, and see that Joseph, generations later, was living with these promises. It's the promises given to Abraham that causes Joseph to make such a statement. Let's look at them very briefly. I'll just read them. The Lord had said to Abraham, and you remember his name was Abraham first of all, and then became Abraham. Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the scars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land, out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give you this land to take possession of it. Let's just remind us, we had this picture some weeks ago, here we are, Ur of the Chaldees. He's there with his father Terah and their family. And they travel all the way via Haran uh, to Canaan, which is over there. And during that time, God speaks to him and gives him great and wonderful promises. And there's one particular promise that I think is outstanding because it gives some detail as to what's going to happen in the intervening period. And here it is. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants, these ones that have been promised already, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Isn't that a detailed prophecy of what was to happen to Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel. And this would have been passed down to Joseph, right passed down through the generations. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob gets a a reinforcement of this promise too. And then we have Joseph, the person that's uh, mentioned in our text for today, Joseph. So who is Joseph and what is his story? I've been a bit aware that as we've been going through this series, we've been leaping back to the Old Testament and mentioning a few people. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, that's fine. But otherwise, I think some people might think, well, you've mentioned different names, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's all very confusing to me. So we want to ask the question, uh, who is Joseph? Well, he's pretty famous, actually. Um, He's been on the West End for for over 40 years. Um, And uh, this musical, this contemporary cantata, was composed in 1968. That's when we moved to Chesterfield, 1968. It was intended for schools, uh, and it's still performed in schools. But it got onto the West End, and apparently it's on national tour now. And we have to say that the story of Joseph is one of the most famous in the Old Testament. And it's perhaps one of the most easy to read 
Uh, I find when I was wanting to read some stories to our grandson a little while ago, the story of Joseph was one of the easiest stories for him to get hold of. Anyway, we're going to have a little potted version of the story of um, Joseph and um, Janet's going to read it for us. Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, sons of Leah, Gad and Asher, sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant girl, Dan and Naphtali, sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant girl, and Joseph and Benjamin, Rachel's sons. Joseph was Jacob's favourite. He should have known it would lead to trouble, but Rachel had died when Benjamin was born, and Jacob had loved Rachel so much. He could not help loving her sons more than the other children, and he did not even try to be fair. He spoiled Joseph and dressed him in a special coat, one that should have been given to Jacob's first son, Reuben. This made all the brothers jealous, and they hated Joseph. There was more trouble because Joseph had dreams, and in his dreams his brothers and his father, too, were all bowing down to him. Even Jacob was cross when Joseph boasted about his dreams. One day Jacob sent Joseph out to check that his brothers and the flocks were well. But when they saw Joseph coming, they decided to kill him. Reuben, who was hoping to rescue the boy later, persuaded them not to kill him there and then. Throw him into this dry well, he said, and they agreed. But when Reuben was away looking after the sheep, some traders passed by on their way to Egypt. The other brothers sold Joseph to them for 20 pieces of silver, When Reuben returned, it was too late. They took Joseph's special coat and stained it with blood. Then they went home and showed it to their father. Jacob wept bitter tears, thinking that wild animals had torn Joseph to pieces. He would not be comforted. Meanwhile, Joseph had been sold as a slave to Potiphar, an officer of the king of Egypt. Joseph was a slave in a foreign land, But he was not alone. God was with him. And Potiphar was soon so pleased with his new slave that he put him in charge of his household and all his business. Joseph was good-looking, and Potiphar's wife fell in love with him. But he was loyal to his master and would not make love to her. Then Potiphar's wife grew angry and told lies about Joseph to her husband. She said that Joseph had attacked her. Potiphar was furious. He had Joseph flung into the king's prison, but God was still with him. He won the prison governor's trust and was put in charge of all the other prisoners. One of them was the the king of Egypt's butler, the man who served his wine. Another was the king's baker. One night, both men had strange dreams. Next morning... When Joseph came to bring their food, he found them very worried. What could these dreams mean? In Egypt, in those days, people took their dreams seriously. Every dream had a meaning. God can show us the meaning of dreams, Joseph said. So the butler and the baker told Joseph their dreams, and God showed Joseph what they meant. 
the butler had drunk of a vine with three branches. He picked the grapes and squeezed the juice into the king's cup and gave it to him. In three days' time, Joseph said, the king will set you free and you will have your old job back. Please be kind enough to mention me to the king and help me to get out of prison, the butler promised. The baker had dreamt he was carrying three bread baskets on his head full of pastries for the king, but the birds were eating them. In three days' time, Joseph said, the king will bring you out of prison, but he will cut off your head. Everything happened just as Joseph had said, but the butler forgot all about his promise. Two years later, the king had a strange dream, and no one could explain it. Then the butler remembered Joseph, and he was brought out of prison. The king told him his dream. The king was standing by the river Nile when seven fat cows came out of the river. Then came seven thin cows, and the thin cows ate up the fat ones. God showed Joseph what the dreamt meant. There will be seven years of good harvests, followed by seven hungry years, Joseph told the king. If you are wise, you will store food in the good years so that your people do not starve in the bad ones. The king was delighted to have his dream explained. Joseph was clearly a man of God. There could be no better man to arrange for the grain and crops to be stored. So the king put his own ring on Joseph's finger and a gold chain round his neck and made him second in command over the whole land of Egypt. After seven years, as Joseph had said, the crops did not grow and in many lands there was little to eat. But in Egypt, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold food to the people. In Canaan, his father and brothers were already short of grain to make bread. At last, Jacob decided to send his sons, all of them except Benjamin, to Egypt. As Jacob's ten sons bowed before the governor, asking if they might buy grain, none of them recognised their long-lost brother. But Joseph knew at once who they were. He decided to see if they were still as cruel as they had been, so he looked at them sternly. "'You are spies,' he said, and flung them into prison." He set them free after three days, but he made them promise to bring Benjamin with them next time. He kept Simeon as a hostage to make sure that they did. Then he ordered his servants to put the money in his brothers had paid for the grain back in their sack. When the brothers opened their sacks and found the money, they were very worried. Sadly, they travelled back to Canaan with the grain. Next time, they must take Benjamin. But how could they persuade Jacob to part with his youngest son? When the food was finished, there was no choice. Benjamin had to go with them or they would starve. Again, they stood before the governor of Egypt and when Joseph saw Benjamin, he could hardly hold back his tears. The brothers knelt before Joseph. How is the old man, your father, he said, and is this your youngest brother? Then Joseph's servants prepared a meal and the brothers sat down to eat. When the food was brought, Benjamin was given five times as much as the others. But still Joseph did not tell them who he was. Next morning, when the sacks were filled with grain, Joseph told his servants to hide his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack. The brothers had not gone far when Joseph's men caught up with them. 
they were looking for the thief who had stolen Joseph's cup. When Benjamin's sack was opened, there, to the brothers' horror, lay the missing cup. They all returned to the city and fell at Joseph's feet. The man in whose sack the cup was found shall be my slave, said Joseph, testing them. The rest of you are free to go. But the brothers would not hear of it. They could not bear to tell their father that this son too had been taken from him. Judah spoke, If Benjamin does not return with us, our father will die of grief. I promised to bring the boy back safely. Let me be your slave in his place. When Joseph heard this, he knew his brothers were truly sorry for what they had done to him, to him all those years before. He sent his servants out of the room and then burst into tears. I am Joseph, he said. Is my father still alive? There was dismay on all their faces. Now Joseph could really pay them back. What would he do to them? But Joseph was speaking again. Don't be afraid. It was God who sent me here in order to save all our lives. The harvest will be bad for five more years and many will starve to death. Go home and bring the rest of the family here to live near me in the land of Goshen. And he hugged them all as the tears ran down his face. So, Joseph, so Jacob and Joseph brothers, their wives and children, their servants and cattle and flocks left Canaan and came to Egypt. Joseph took Jacob to the palace to meet the king and then they all settled in Goshen, the best part of the land. Good. Thank you, Janet. Great. Well, God's promises to Abraham and Jacob included possession of the land of Canaan. You remember that? Once it was a fertile place of plenty, now for a season it was a place of famine. And through Joseph, God had rescued Jacob's entire family from starvation, his flocks and his herds, and settled them in the best place in Egypt with Pharaoh's blessing. What could be better? Well, nothing for the time being. Nothing could be better because it was God's plan for them. Um, But Joseph knew that one day they would have to leave because Egypt was not God's ultimate promise for them. The land of Canaan was. He also knew from what God had said to Abraham that this leaving of Egypt uh, was a long time in the future. Remember, it, it was actually foretold 400 years. They were, but have you thought just how long 400 years is? If you think back in our history, how long ago that is and the things that were happening in this country 400 years ago. But there was something that just, you know, what, what can he do to keep these, these promises alive in his family for 400 years? That's the, the problem he had. Something that would help motivate them to leave Egypt for Canaan at God's appointed time. Well, here's what he did. Um, our text was from um, the chapter 11 of Hebrews. We're going back to now what, what is being quoted, back to Genesis uh, chapter 50. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and you must carry my bones up from this place. 
So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. I suggest he was not thoroughly buried in Egypt like famous people. He was now famous, second in command to Pharaoh. He would have, had, he would have been entombed in something pretty magnificent. But somehow or other, he's in a coffin and it's put to one side. And of course, the summarization by the writer to the Hebrews was, and by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Now, can you see what the relevance of the bones is now? He's telling them they've got to do something with them. They've got to carry them away from there once the, the people of Israel uh, have um, been released from Egypt. But it's a long time in the future. As second in command, Joseph would have been entombed in a place of honour, but he chose to be identified with his people, the people of God. Surely all this will have been forgotten in 400 years' time. As I say, 400 years is such a long time, especially when you think about the circumstances under which the Israelites left Egypt. If you know the story, they left in a hurry. They just grabbed what they could and they left. Um, And you might wonder, well, was it all forgotten? Was Joseph and his bones forgotten? Well, we can read in Exodus... Moses took the bones of Joseph. Moses is about to lead the people out of, out of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and you must carry my bones up with you from this place. I just think it's amazing how this truth gets carried down through the generations. 400 years, look at how many generations that will be. And it's still alive in the people. It's the, all to do with the promises of God. But then the Israelites, having been delivered from Pharaoh, they're now in the desert, they're on their way to the promised land, they become very rebellious, um, even under the leadership of Moses. And it takes 40 years to get to the the land of Canaan, the promised land, when it should have taken 40 days. Uh, And you might wonder, well, by the time they get there, um, will they remember? Will they remember what they've got to do? Uh, with Joseph's bones. So apart from a handful of people, a generation had to die out and a new generation emerge that would trust God and enter the land. Surely Joseph's wishes would be lost in all this and the motivation they were supposed to give uh, be given up. But no, after the death of Moses, we know it was Joshua who took the people into the land, um, conquering in different ways, conquering different parts of the land. And we read this. We don't read this because it's not working. Ah, thank you. It's gone to sleep. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who, were, who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This, because the inher- this became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. See how it worked. 
what this strange thing that Joseph asked the people to do helped to keep them focused on what God's purpose was for them, which was the promised land. This is a wonderful story of how the promises of God were handed down through generations and helped the people keep looking forwards to their inheritance. And in particular, today we have looked at Joseph giving some instructions about his bones. And I just think this story, as we've looked at it, it just shows how amazing the Bible is, how complete the Bible is, what God promises in many cases we see fulfilled uh, later on through its history. But what about us? What's the relevance of all this for us? Uh, For all those who put their trust in Jesus, God has given us some very great and precious promises, hasn't he? You know, they're wonderful promises. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit eternal life. We're going to be in communion with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is going to come and take us to be with him. And when we're with him, we'll we'll see him as he is and we will be like him. That's promise after promise. Uh, Wonderful. But has God given us anything that will help us keep our hope firmly rooted in these promises? That's, That's what Joseph was doing. He was giving the people something that they were to do that were to help them keep in mind the promises that God gave uh, to Abraham. Has, has God given us anything uh, to, you know, to convince us that this life is not all there is um, and that we can look ahead to the things that God has promised us? Well, it's not a pile of bones, you'll be pleased to know. All right? It's something else. And um, like Joseph's brothers, we have instructions from someone who was about to die. Joseph was about to die and he speaks to his brothers. Jesus, on the night before he was, or when he was betrayed and arrested, gathered his disciples and he referred to them as his brothers. You know, that they were his brothers. Uh, to celebrate the Passover, the very deliverance from Egypt that we've been thinking about and we've been considering. And he takes symbols, some things that were part of the Passover celebration, that perpetuating um, celebration where the Jews would remember their deliverance from Egypt. He, he took those elements, those things, and he gave them new meaning. And I think we all uh, know what the Passover feast, feast celebrates. The fact that um, uh, Pharaoh did not want to let the children of Israel go, even though Moses went to him repeatedly. And God sent various plagues. And still he wouldn't let them go until this very dreadful plague of the death of the firstborn. Uh, And in order that the Israelites would not suffer this plague, they were instructed to take the blood of a lamb and paint it over the doorpost. And when the angel of death passed over, and that's where you get the word Passover, uh, they would see the blood and the Israelite firstborn would be spared. And um, so this is what that is all about. And of course we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God uh, who takes away the sin of the world. So what we find is that in this celebration, here's some words from the Gospels. Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So what we're doing when we take the bread and the wine, we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember that our sin could only be dealt with by the sinless Son of God taking the punishment that we deserved. Uh, And we remember that. And Jesus is telling his, I'm going to be laying down my life for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're looking back and we're saying that this sacrifice that we celebrate here is still effective for us. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from all sin. So it's past, but it has present effect. But, but Joseph was pointing to the future. Is Jesus pointing to the future um, in giving his instructions? Well, Jesus did, and it's contained in the statement, I tell you, which is uh, there in yellow, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a day coming when we, as God's people, will celebrate, and it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, um, in God's kingdom. That wonderful day is coming. And to help us understand this, we need perhaps just to go back a, a, a few months to when um, Steve was preaching at the beginning of June and we had two sermons on the church, the bride of Christ. Do you remember this? And uh, David was the first one and then it was Steve. The bride of Christ is one of the metaphors that the New Testament has for the church. Jesus um, in the Gospels refers to himself as the bridegroom and the church is the bride and we have to consider ourselves as being the bride. At the moment we're a family Um, but we're also a bride. And um, Steve explained the fact that in those days, marriage was slightly different from what it is today and probably still is for the Jews, inasmuch as betrothal and marriage is slightly different from our engagement and marriage. Betrothal was an absolute commitment to be married. And it was so, so much of a commitment that to break betrothal, there had to be a divorce. You had to go through divorce proceedings. And um, the betrothal was declaring the couple married, but not yet living together. So, at the betrothal, the bridegroom would offer the woman a cup of wine. If she agreed, that she agreed to be betrothed, which meant she agreed to be married to him, she would drink from the cup, And the bridegroom would say, I will not drink of this cup until we are reunited. And he goes away and prepares a place for them to live. That's something familiar. It's just so familiar with what Jesus said. So when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we are betrothed to him. And he goes away to prepare a place for us. At the Last Supper, Jesus confirmed his betrothal. He's really saying to his disciples, here's the cup. Will you marry me? Will you marry me? And once he'd finished his work on the cross, he went to prepare a home for us. One day he will come back for those who said yes. Those who said yes. So that the marriage will be consummated at some time. It will be complete. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
as well as looking back with gratitude for all that Christ has accomplished through his death, we're also looking forward to his return. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he talks to them about the mess they're making of the Lord's Supper. They're running riot at this kind of love feast, but in the middle of it he gives us some really helpful instructions. He kind of reiterates what Jesus says, um, but gives us another little clue about the future. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm sure we mostly, when we take communion, we mostly think about the death of Jesus, the sacrifice for us, our sins forgiven, um, the cleansing that comes through that. But the Apostle Paul is saying, this is interim, right? It's only for a season because it will cease when Jesus comes again. And every time, every time you celebrate it, in a sense, in your heart, you should be longing for the return of Jesus. You should be longing for him to come. Peter says this, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We come back to that principle, that our view of the future and what we expect about the future should affect the way we live now. You know, we, we purify ourselves, in a sense, by looking forward to the return of Jesus. Joseph talked about his bones. Uh, Jesus talked about a cup. And the Apostle Paul said that we're celebrating this until Jesus comes. And so God has given us something. Not bones, but some promises and things to do that help to remind us. Right at the end of the Bible, the end of the Bible is looking forward to the return of Jesus. Um, the book of Revelation isn't the easiest book to understand. But at the end, I've just altered one or two words just to help us. But Here's what it says. It's about Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Right, The Holy Spirit who indwells every believer should engender, should be engendering that, that, that desire to see the Lord Jesus. And the Bride says, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let him who hears say, come. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. Fantastic. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. He can say that because as we look for the Lord's return, as we live out this life, whether it's through pleasure, great things, tragedy, whatever it is, our focus is on the return of Jesus and God will provide us grace in this life until he takes us home. Isn't that fantastic? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful promises over our lives. We don't deserve them, um, Lord, but they're by your grace and your mercy. You have promised us so much because we belong to Jesus. And Lord, we want to celebrate that now. 
Lord, as we take the bread and take the wine, Lord, we want to celebrate that fact that Jesus has saved us from sin. Uh, He's with us now to help us and that he's coming again. Lord, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, quite briefly, we're going to share communion together and Fred and Iris are going to serve it for us and then we'll sing a song before uh, we come to an end. Thank you.